0: morning, let us stand together, hear from God's word together, consider these words from Psalm 31. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, sometimes in God's good and gracious wisdom, He places us in a besieged city or a besieged state. So if you find yourself in that state today, remember that he does that so that we would see and experience his steadfast love in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. So let us in these trying days not miss his wisdom and his goodness among us. And let us cry out together. Let us praise together. Rejoice that he is too wise to be mistaken. He's too good to be unkind. And in this room, while we sing from our hearts, we can praise together in unity and clapping our hands in praise. Let's do that. God shall alone a refuge be and the comfort of my mind. Too wise to be mistaken, he is too good to be unkilled. God shall alone the refuge be in the comfort of my mind. Too wise to be mistaken,
1: he is
0: too good to be unkilled. is our God. How wise and good is He. He molds me into
2: Mistaken He is Too good
3: and good and sovereign is our God uh, completely, perfectly, to, to the uttermost, supremely. That is our God. Amen. You can be seated. And welcome to this worship service of Desert Springs Church. My name is Ryan Kelly. I'm the preaching pastor here. Uh, what does that mean, a preaching pastor? Well, I do the majority of the Sunday morning sermons, uh, but in the month of July in August, I've been on a writing sabbatical. And so you've been hearing from Chase as he delivers messages from 2 Thessalonians uh, so well. And uh, we've got a couple more weeks in 2 Thessalonians. And then in September, I'm back in the saddle and we'll begin the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. I think it'll be useful for us in these times as we think about, uh, well, this this title for the series, uh, Rebuilding from the Rubble. That's the story of Nehemiah in short. Well, we are four weeks into this experiment of meeting in person while still social distancing. And that means uh, for now that uh, we're asking our covenant members to come uh, at a set time, um, at a certain week, according to your last name. Uh, But keep in mind that visitors can come whenever. So invite someone to join you. Um, Or perhaps on your off week, uh, if you can creatively invite them to your backyard to To view from a laptop or something like that, maybe do that. Uh, Or or perhaps just point someone to uh, our website or to our service if uh, they're in a season of life right now. Maybe they're not yet a Christian or um, perhaps they uh, are looking for a church home, Um, but we would love to be able to serve them. And we want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. Perhaps you're in this room and you're one of those visitors. You haven't done one of these services in this room with us before. Well, we say welcome to you. And we would love to get to know you better. We would love to serve you. Um, we would love to answer any questions you might have about our church or what we believe or who Jesus is. If you're not yet a Christian, uh, you can email us at info at And the same goes for those viewing uh, online. We say welcome to you. Perhaps this is the first time you've tuned in. Well, just let us know. Use that email address. Let us know that you uh, have been with us uh, in this e-format in these strange days. Uh, We appreciate your patience as a church and your understanding and even your prayers for our elders uh, in these strange times. Um, Don't think because a week or two or three goes by and nothing has changed in our protocols um, that we're not talking about this and praying about it and watching the governor's updates just like uh, many of you are as well. And so we'll continue to be as proactive as we can be in these days. And no matter how you slice it, this is a trial, right? This is a trial. This is trying, These are trying circumstances. And whatever else we can say about what's going on, we can apply those passages of the Bible that speak of trials and suffering to this situation and to our own hearts and to our own worries as well. I think of James 1 and Romans 5 and Romans 8 and the story of Job and the story of Joseph. Uh, So even where we might disagree with our governor, even where you might disagree with your elders at times, We can apply these verses. We can count it all joy when we go through various trials. We can know that the trying of our faith works patience, and we should let patience have its perfect work that we might be holy and blameless, like James 1 says. So we're praying that for you. Uh, We're feeling that ourselves, and um, we're in it together. We'll hear this from Matthew 18, which reminds us of our salvation and uh, really shows us the heart of our Savior, the shepherd. Matthew 18, Jesus said, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's good news. In light of it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, indeed, we confess we have gone astray. And as Christians, we also happily confess That our Savior went looking and found us and has made us his own. Lord, we thank you for a Savior whose heart rejoices to go after the wayward. Rejoices. Who are we? Who who are we to be your people? And who are we to be a people who cannot stop being your people? It's the Father's will that none should perish. So in light of that astounding grace, Lord, may we ask for your help to tune our hearts, to to sing of your grace for those at home, and to, to meditate and ponder and stand in awe and clap about your grace for those in this room. Come, fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing and speak and worship about your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Yes, let us stand and
0: put these words on our hearts and in our minds. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Go for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious song Sung by flaming sons above Praise the mountain fixed upon it Mount of Irene
1: to thy love has blessed me you have
0: brought me to this place and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by night. yes he did it Jesus saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God he took back from danger Interposed His precious blood Oh to grace How great a debtor Daily I'm Constrained to be. Let thy grace flow like a feather Bind my wand more. Oh. I shall see thy lovely face. Then, when clothed in blood washed linen, how I'll sing, we'll all sing it, in sovereign grace. And come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. That's your hope. Say amen. In days of peace and days of rest, in times of loss. And loneliness Though rich or poor Your word is true That all my ways Are known to you No trial has come Beyond your hand No step I walk Beyond your plan The path is done i to see
3: with me let's pray together. Oh Lord we could do no better than to lean upon the words of Jesus in his prayer for his disciples and those who would come after them which he prayed in John 17. So Lord we thank you that Jesus spoke to his father about being glorified in the cross and was glorified in the cross and resurrection. We thank you that the son spoke to the father about accomplishing all that the work that he gave him to do. Oh Lord, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, as you said, gave us your words and gave us eternal life through those words. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you prayed for your disciples. You prayed that they'd be kept In the Father's name, we thank you, Lord, that you prayed for us to not be immediately taken out of the world, but to be kept from the evil one within the world. We are not of the world, as you said, and may that be so more and more. May that be clearer. May it be properly clear that we are indeed in the world, but we are not to be of the world in its ways Lord Jesus, we thank you that you prayed that we would be sanctified and sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. So we pray for your help, Lord, to go to your word more often than we do, to think on it more frequently, to look to it and to gaze upon it intently. Sanctify us in that word. Lord, we pray as you did, Lord Jesus, for those who haven't yet believed but will believe through the disciples' word, perhaps through our word, and perhaps this week. We pray for them. We pray for all who will believe. We pray, as you prayed, Lord Jesus, that we would all be one. Unify us in this church. Unify your church in this world more and more. We pray, Lord, for that day when we will be with you, whether by death or by your return, we'll be with you, and we will see your glory, glory given to the one Son, loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. Until that glorious day, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ongoing high priestly intercession for us. This prayer in John 17 was once spoken. But we know you live to make intercession for your people, according to Hebrews 7, that the Son of God and God himself would pray for us and pray for us better than we know to pray. Well, it's an honor and a privilege beyond words, one we don't deserve in the least, but only because of your death and resurrection for us. So we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, we would pray for each other in light of it, for your glory and for our good. Amen.
0: Let us stand and meditate on all that it means for us to be in Christ and all that we have in him.
4: Thank you, brothers and sisters, for singing, leading us and sing, singing for us in our place. I, I was singing vicariously through Drew Hodge right then, because uh, Jesus deserves that, that kind of praise, and we do rejoice in our souls. You can be seated. If you've got a Bible, we're in Second Thessalonians, chapter 3. So Ryan said, we've got two more weeks in this study, so this morning we're going to look at verses 6 to 12 in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, so let me read these verses to us. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And that you have called us and enabled us to work for your glory and for the good of others. God, I ask that you would work right now by your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to think, right thoughts about your word. Help me to say, right thoughts about your word. And that you would build us up into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So as we move into what is really the closing section of 2 Thessalonians, it's really important that we keep in mind what this letter's emphasis has been throughout, especially its emphasis on the return of Christ. So if you remember in chapter 1, Paul is trying to comfort a church that's being persecuted with the hope that Jesus will come back and he will vindicate them. And so they are to wait for Christ's return. And then in chapter 2, he's going to help them know better how to uh, recognize when Christ is going to come back. If you remember that there were many in this church who were confused about the timing of Christ's return. And so he gives them some clear signs for when to expect Jesus to come back. Well now in chapter 3, the focus is really how we as Christians are to live in this world until Christ comes back. So if you remember what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 5, it is that we're to live a life that's dedicated to the spread of the gospel around the world and to prayer for that mission until the day that that mission is accomplished, when Christ returns. Well, in these verses, we'll look at how we as Christians are supposed to go about our work or our labor until Christ returns. So that raises an interesting question. If you knew that Jesus was going to come back, let's say you knew Jesus was going to come back in exactly one year from now. In just chapter 2, he's not. Okay? I don't think he is because the man of lawlessness has not been revealed and the rebellion has not happened yet. Okay? So, so I don't think that he is going to come back in a year. But let's say that we knew for certain that Jesus was going to come back on August twenty third, two 2021. How would that change the way that you viewed your work? How would that change the way that you viewed your wealth? How would you think about what you've spent your whole life up until now pursuing? Would you be relieved? Would you be frustrated? Would you keep working at all? This is a helpful way to evaluate the decisions that we're making in this life, is to think of them in terms of Christ's coming back and it can show us when we think about that where we may be operating from a place of misunderstanding which is exactly what the Thessalonians have been doing we'll see in verse six that at least some of the Thessalonians have a problem with their view of work and if we're not careful we can have the same problem so this is our first point the problem with work Verse 6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So, Next week, we're going to look in more detail about what he means by keeping away from these brothers, okay? We'll see in verses 13 to 15 that that Paul is saying that this issue, whatever it is, is is really bad and it needs uh, the attention of the church and maybe even in the form of church discipline. But there is some issue that is going on and and what he says is that there are some in the church who are walking in idleness. That word idleness um, is not as easy a word to define as you would think. In in Greek, it doesn't just mean being lazy or slothful. Okay, it actually means literally not in order or disordered. Outside of the Bible, this word here is used of soldiers who broke ranks. It's used of people that are generally just irresponsible. And it's even used of people who are intentionally disruptive in public. Okay, so there are some in the Thessalonian church who are not living lives ordered according to God's design. As the King James Version puts it, they walketh disorderly. And this disorderliness has manifested itself in verse 10 in an unwillingness to work. So these people are clearly able to work, but they have actively decided not to. And maybe they are even trying to get other people in this church to join them in giving up their jobs. I think that's what verse 11 means when it says that they're not busy at work. They're busy bodies. And I love that play on words, don't you? That's there in the Greek too. I'm glad it came through in the English. They're living in a disorderly way. They're stirring up division and even theological controversy. And what they're doing is they're distracting the rest of the church from living a rightly ordered life. And just to be extra clear, okay, these are people who are able to work and are not working. So, so this is not people that for whatever reason, for their health or for their age or for other legitimate circumstances, they, are, they have lost their jobs. They're unable to work. Okay, this is not talking to them. If, if you are in that position, that's what the church is for is to be a resource, is to be a family that helps you, that bears those burdens. So you should never be ashamed to come to the church with, with your, your burdens and even your financial burdens and to ask for help. That's what family does, right? But what we have here is members of the family, so to speak, who are taking advantage of their family. They are burdening the church when they shouldn't be. They're able, but they're not willing. And the big question is, why? Why? Why are they not willing to work? Well, we can't say for certain. There's actually a number of theories, but I do think that given the end times focus of this letter, it's very likely that their not working is connected to that misunderstanding about Jesus' return, which goes back to the question that I asked at the beginning. If you knew that Jesus was going to come back, or, or like they thought Jesus had already come back, if you knew that Jesus was... About to come back, would you still work? And these Thessalonians have said, why bother? And Paul knows that that's a big problem. Because that kind of disorderly lifestyle, it's not just annoying, and I think you get the sense that they're just being annoying, but it's, it's harmful, and it's a hindrance to the gospel. Remember the verses that came just before this. What was Paul praying for? He was praying that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. And these Christians living like this are hindering mission. They're hindering it, one, because by by taking resources from the church that they don't need, they're taking resources away from people that could actually use it. The church can't help people that have legitimate needs because they're helping these people that don't. And even more, the church can't support the ministry of the gospel because they're giving these resources to these idle people. But I think more importantly, this disordered lifestyle is shameful. And it makes the church and Jesus look bad. If you look down at verse 14, Paul says that these people should be ashamed Shame is the opposite of honor. That was what Paul wanted with the message of the Lord, to be honored. And the way that they're living is dishonorable. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul gives a very similar address to probably the same people and the same issue. And there he writes that, that Christians should work with their hands so that they may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So clearly Paul is concerned with people outside of the church looking in at the church and seeing people living in a dishonorable way, living in a lazy way, living in a way that they are burdening people unfairly. And they would look at the church and say, look at how shameful these people are. Clearly what they believe is just as shameful. And that's a threat to the gospel. It's a big deal. And so Paul comes in in this letter and he says, quit it. Really, more to the point, he's talking to the people that are not being idle, and he's saying, hey, if they don't quit it, don't have anything to do with them, because that is not the way that we taught you to walk. Paul's right to call this lifestyle disordered, because it's it's out of step with the very order by which God created the whole world and mankind to live in it. It's so important that we, that we understand this, because I think we can be tempted, just like the Thessalonians were, to think that work is part of the fallen world that we live in, that work is actually something that we need to be saved from. I think that's what these guys were doing. they thinking, oh, well, great, Jesus is about to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to make everything perfect, and when everything is perfect, there will be no more work, so let's just stop working now. And Paul says, that's not our tradition That's not our faith. That's not what we taught you. Work is not a bad thing. And it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. When God worked to make the heavens and the earth. Do you remember that? It says in the seventh day, God rested from his labors. God was laboring that whole time. He was working to make a world that was in perfect harmony, that worked exactly the way that it was supposed to. And then he made man in his own image, male and female. He placed them in the garden. And do you remember what he did? He gave man a job. Genesis 2, 15 says that God put man in the garden to work it and keep it. And I don't know if you know this. Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3 so man had a job when the world was perfect and it was a perfect job it was never unsatisfying it was never unfruitful it was it was always what he was meant to be and in so doing in having dominion and subduing the earth like god told him to do he was bearing god's image to the whole world to the whole creation he was working like god worked and it was only after man's rebellion that we got the problem with work. Genesis 3, God says to Adam, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam was a worker before the fall, and Adam was a worker after the fall. Only after the fall there were thorns and thistles. So the problem is not work, it's the thorns and the thistles. No longer will work always be as satisfying as it can be. No longer will work always be easy or fruitful. There will be bad days, but the problem is not work. Work itself is the same as it ever was, an integral part of our being made in the image of God, of being human. We worked before the fall, we work now under the effects of the fall, and I think when the fall is reversed, when Jesus returns and does make everything perfect, we will still be working. As I was studying these passages, I was reminded of some verses from Micah, chapter 4, Micah, the Old Testament prophet. And he's got this incredible vision. It's, it's so beautiful. It, it begins with, with a vision of the latter days, of the end times. And it says, in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up the highest among all of the mountains. And all of the nations shall flow into it to learn God's law. And I was thinking about Two weeks ago, what Mr. G told us about all of the Bible's promises about the the assurance that God's mission of saving to the ends of the earth will be accomplished. This is just another beautiful mission of people from all over the world coming in to worship God. But then it says something so cool that all of these people are together at the mountain of the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and it says that they take their swords and they beat them into plowshares, and they take their spears and they turn them into pruning hooks, you know what that means? It means that they're taking their instruments that were used for war and they're converting them into instruments for productivity, for agriculture. <laughs> they're taking their weapons and they're turning them into tools. And then it has this, this amazing line. It says that everyone, every man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's, that's Micah's vision of the end times, that, that each one of us will have a fig tree that we're working, that we're tending and eating the fruit of. That we're gonna take these, these what once were swords and use them to be productive in a perfect world where there is only peace. But we will be working hard and so joyful about it. Is that how you think about heaven? Because that's what, that's what the Bible is saying. And this is ultimately where the Thessalonians have gotten mixed up. They think the world is about to end and there will be no more work. But they don't realize that work is fundamental to our existence in God's world. And so in our own context, we may not struggle with, with the same kind of what some have called overrealized realized eschatology that the Thessalonians have. That we'll just quit our jobs and wait around for Jesus to come back. But we are all prone, aren't we, to have a disordered view of work and to think that work is something that we need to be saved from when it's really something that we were made for. So why do we work in this life? And by work, I mean more than, more than just clocking into an hourly job or something like that, okay? Stay-at-home moms, you work. Full-time students, you work. Retirees, you work. You're not dead yet. But why do we work? You know, I wish, honestly, I could spend seven weeks talking to you about all of the different things that the Bible says about work and why we work. But from this passage, we do get something to to what is the heart of the matter, I think. So look at verses seven to nine. We see the purpose of work. Paul writes, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it wasn't because we do not have the right, but it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, The, the book of Acts tells us that, that Paul was a tent maker. So his family business, as it were, was, was making Tense. And so whether that was explicitly what he was doing or he was just putting those skills to work some way when he was there in Thessalonica, he was working a manual labor job the whole time he was there proclaiming the gospel to them. And what does he say? He didn't have to do that. Paul was essentially working two jobs he could have just posted up as a teacher of the gospel, as a preacher of the gospel, and been supported by the church. That's a biblical principle. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says a teacher or a preacher should be worthy of honor and worthy of their wages. Okay? It's right that, that laborers in the word be supported to that end. Paul says that would be my right, but I didn't avail myself of that right. I worked two jobs for you. Because in this case, even his working as a tent maker was him teaching. He was teaching them about what it looks like to work hard as someone made in the image of God. But I think even more, he was teaching them about love. Why did Paul work so hard? Look at what he says. We didn't want to burden any of you. We didn't want to take from any of you. We wanted to give. We wanted to give our lives to you. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians. We wanted to give our time to you. Most of all, we wanted to give you the gospel. That's an example to imitate. And this is one of the most amazing things about work and about the purpose of work. We don't work for ourselves. Do you get that? We don't work for ourselves. We work for others. Our productivity is, can be and should be an act of love and generosity that glorifies God. That's the purpose of work. And by generosity, I don't just mean giving your money, although that's huge, that is very important. If you work a job that you get paid for, that money is not for you to buy fun stuff. That money is for you to support your own family, and that money is for you to support your church family to help those who are in need and further the mission of of what we are called to do as Christians and as a local church. But outside of money, we all work, and we need to realize that working hard itself is an act of God-glorifying love. Do you hear that? Working in and of itself, whatever you do, is an act of God-glorifying love. If you work in a job, when you boil that down, all you are doing is serving somebody else. That is what every job worth doing is. It's just an act of service to somebody. You are serving customers. You are serving your coworkers. You are serving your boss. You are serving somebody. And that's powerful. My generation, we grew up with this really messed up understanding of work. You know, I just I can think, like every year in elementary school, they would ask us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And implicit in that assignment was that you should aspire to be something amazing, something world-changing, something significant. And that was what we were taught every year growing up that you need to do something that's great, something that is significant and you can be whatever you want to be. And then we graduated college and we tried to find a job and it seemed like all of the world-changing jobs were already taken. And all of the entry-level jobs were super boring because we had this misunderstanding about work. We didn't realize that any job worth doing does change the world. It does make the world a better place because that's what God made us to do. Maybe it's not world-changing in a way that's very remarkable. Maybe nobody's going to notice it. You may not be an Instagram influencer with the job that you do, but honestly, who cares? You know, I don't remember. Maybe there was, but I don't think there was any kid when I was growing up that when we did that assignment, he says, you know what I want to be when I grow up? A plumber. But do you know who has a world-changing job? My plumber, <laughs> he made my world better. And he just goes around all day, every day, making people's lives a little bit better, making the world a little bit better. If you step back and you think about what our economy is, it's actually just a bunch of people committing little acts of service to one another all the time. And most people don't even realize it. They just they just think they're plugging away, working for a paycheck. They don't realize that their job is so significant It has been endowed with significance because they are made in the image of God to do that. But Christian, you can realize it. You can realize that your job matters and that your job is an opportunity to love other people. And you can work even harder to be loving in your job. You can work even harder to make your products good for someone else. You can work even harder to treat your employees well. You can work even harder to even have opportunities to share the gospel because of your work, even through your work like Paul was doing. And when you do that, you glorify God. You please God. William Tyndale, one time, he was an English reformer, and he once said that on the outside, there's a big difference between someone standing up and preaching and someone washing dishes. But when it comes to which one of those pleases God, there's no difference at all. Whatever God has called you to do, whatever he has put in your hand to do, do it with all of your might for the good of other people and in doing that, you glorify God. If you're retired... Don't view your retirement as your retirement. This is a special season for you to serve other people and to serve God. If you're a student, why are you studying what you're studying? Are you studying it for your own sake? Or is this preparing you for something that will be a blessing to other people? If you're a stay-at-home mom... I mean, I know it almost sounds like a cliche, but I mean it when I say, you have like the most important job in the whole world. Just parents in general, and I know a lot of parents, I'm a parent, I know a lot of parents feel like they're working two jobs. You've got your job and then you've got your kids. But this is such an important opportunity for you to serve other people and in so doing to serve the whole world. Hannah Arndt once said, every generation... Civilization is invaded by barbarians. And we call them children. (laughs) And what she meant was, unless we train our kids, every generation, we are one generation away from ruin. The only thing standing between us and civilizational collapse is good parents toiling night and day to love and to train their children. And if we do that, it changes the world. And in Christian parents, how much more training up your children in the fear and knowledge of God? Much more to train up your children with this same view of work, that you would help your own kids understand that they are not takers, they are not consumers, but they are to work hard at being givers because that's the heart of the gospel. This is why this is such a big deal to Paul. When Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, "You know the example that I set for you, imitate my example." What he's really saying is imitate me is I imitate Christ. Because where do you think Paul got this idea of sacrificing himself on behalf of other people so that they might gain from his work? That's the gospel. Jesus Christ did not burden other people. Jesus says himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10, 45. Jesus came and worked hard on your behalf. He lived perfectly on your behalf. He toiled night and day. He resisted temptation. He obeyed his father's law. He cast out demon. He healed the sick. He prayed for us, like Ryan said in our prayer today. It says he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And at the very end, he gave his life. He gave everything. Shed his precious blood so that you, Christian, may be freed of your burden, your burden of sin and of guilt and of shame, so that you wouldn't have to work to inherit eternal life. This is the biggest problem that came out of Adam's sin in Genesis chapter three, was that we were cut off from the one fruit that actually mattered, the fruit of the tree of life. From that day on, we have have been left working to try and get back into that relationship with God to no avail. We are of dust, and to dust we will return. There is no amount of working that we can do that could reverse the effects of the fall, and so Jesus came and worked for us. He took our burden off of himself, and he died on the cross with it. So I wonder if anyone here feels burdened right now. You know that feeling. You know that you have been trying to work to gain God's favor. You've been working hard in your life to try and reach some level of contentment or, or peace. You know you're working in vain and you're burdened. For all your work, your burden just gets heavier and heavier. Well, Jesus stood up and he said, if you're burdened, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest from your work. So if you have not believed in Jesus, if you're walking around with that burden, he stands there ready to take it from you. And to pay the penalty for it, all you have to do is give it to him. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. And then when you let Christ take that burden off of you, well, suddenly you're freed up to bear other people's burdens. That's what this is all about, Paul says. We didn't want to be a burden to you. We wanted to bear your burden. These idle Thessalonians, they are being a burden. And that's why this is such a problem. But, but what this is giving us is a vision that we can work hard for the good of one another. And when we do that, when we work generously for the glory of God, we're going all the way back to the garden. We're being what God made us to be in the first place. We are being truly human, walking in the order that he laid out for that and and for us. And in doing that, we bear his image, even the image of Jesus. So when we work hard, we look more like Jesus. And the gospel speeds ahead and it's honored. It's said that one time Martin Luther was asked the same question that I asked you at the beginning. If you knew that Jesus was about to come back, what would you do? And he said he'd plant a tree. That's a great answer. We don't know if he actually said that. If he didn't, he should have. Because that's, that's the Bible's vision for being truly human. That we know that we are made to work, to do good, to be productive, and to glorify God. So in these closing verses, the Apostle Paul gives us a vision for what it looks like to be God's people at work. So verses 10 to 12 are the people at work. Verse 10 is Paul's sharpest rebuke. He says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And now that we've put it in this context, can you hear in what he's saying even the echoes of the creation order? God told Adam in Genesis 3, it's by the sweat of your brow that you will eat. And what Paul is saying is if anyone's not willing to sweat, then they're not willing to eat. They're being disorderly. But pay attention in verse 10, who he's talking to. This is directed to those in the church who are not walking in idleness. He's saying, church, this is how you should treat those who are not willing to work. In effect, what he's saying is that the church needs to be really discerning in how we go about helping people. If someone's not willing to work, the church should not enable them. The church needs to be very careful about how it as an institution goes about distributing its welfare. If you go to 1st Timothy chapter 5, there's there's this amazing passage where it talks about helping widows providing for them financially and there's this long list of requirements for those widows before they're eligible to be enrolled for receiving regular financial support from the church and as you read that you see that two things emerge the reason that they're so careful and discerning about what makes someone legitimately a widow and in need of that kind of help is one it's for the good of the church but then two it's for her good Lest by helping her, you actually create temptations for her to fall into sin. So we need to be really wise and careful about how we go about distributing the precious resources that we've been called to steward. And, and I'm grateful, uh, as, as I'm in some of those conversations in our own church, that, that our leaders do a really good job of trying to be discerning in who and how we help. But even on an individual level, okay, so this is talking about you and how you treat your brothers and sisters, or even how you treat your own biological children. I think we need to take heed of what what Paul is saying here, because this is a command. If someone is just not willing to work, then they need to experience the repercussions of that. And this takes a lot of wisdom, okay? And if you need counsel and how to walk in that wisdom i know there are people in our church and our elders would love to help you with that but but we may need to have hard conversations with people in our families we may even need to make some hard decisions but but the point is that if we are feeding or housing or clothing someone who's just not willing to work then what we're doing is we're actually robbing them of the experience of being truly human we are robbing them of being the image of God. And in doing that, we are robbing God of glory. Because we were not made to be idle. We were made to work hard. And that's why I love the way that Paul says in verse 12 that he's not only commanding the idol, okay, he turns in verse 12 to talk to the actual idol. And he's not just giving them a command, but he's encouraging them. Do you see that? It means he's coming alongside them. He's exhorting them. He's trying to spur them. He's saying, look, this is the right direction and I want to help you walk in that direction. This is the way that you need to be going to live a rightly ordered life. So he says in verse 12, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And those two, those two statements, that can be our vision for our own work. We... Aspire to do our work quietly. If you were with us when we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I talked about this because he says the same thing there. And it was so helpful for me when he says to work quietly. What that means is it means to be humble. To be humble about your job. It means to submit to your authorities, even in your workplace. It means not working in a way that calls attention to yourself or not viewing your job as an opportunity to glorify yourself. It certainly means to not be a busybody. But when Paul says that we, we should aspire to live quietly, it's really like he's saying, you should make it your ambition to be unremarkable. And I know, it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but, that, but that's it, because when you understand the purpose of your job, that it's not for you, and it's not for your own glory, then, then you can just put your head down and work for the good of other people. You can try to, to love others, and work as unto the Lord and not for men and just quietly plug away at whatever it is that God has put before you with all your might that's working quietly and that's what we're told to do and then when you do that Paul says you earn your own living at the end of verse 12 or in Greek that literally says you eat your own bread and of, of course, that's, that's a reference to these people that are eating other people's bread when they should be eating their own bread, okay? So this is, in one way, a command to be dependent on no one, like he says in First Thessalonians 4. Be dependent on no one, but walk properly before outsiders. So, so it's a negative command to them, quit eating other people's bread, eat your own bread, but I also think it's a positive vision. I think it is an encouragement to us that when you are working hard, when you're working quietly, you get to enjoy the fruit of your own labor. And there is something so fulfilling about that. There is something so right about that because that's how God made us to be productive. And when we're productive for his glory, we get rewards. We get to enjoy the fruit of our labor, but even more, that's just a little foretaste of Micah 4. And that vision of each of us sitting beneath our own vine or our own fig tree working in perfect peace forever. I've titled this sermon, Get to Work. And that's not only a reference to this command, especially to the idol, that they need to get to work. But I hope also for you, that's kind of a corrective on our misunderstanding. Because it's not that our condition is in this life is that we have to work. It's that we get to work. Work is a gift from God. And when we work hard the way that God has made us to, we love others, God is glorified. And in so doing, we are satisfied. When it's hard, when we have those bad days, when the thorns and thistles come up, we remember that it's not work's fault. And that someday soon, because Christ has worked for us, we will enter into that better paradise the new heavens and the new earth when we will get to work and there will be no more thorns and thistles so church until that day let's let's get to work because we get to work amen Amen. let's pray god thank you for the privilege of being made in your image of getting to be productive, of getting to work like you worked to make the world better, to pull out those thorns and thistles, to enjoy the fruit of our labor so much so that we can help other people with the fruit of our labor, that we can love other people with our hard work, that you would be glorified. God, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that people on the outside would look at our church and and they would think that we were honorable. Not just because we worked hard, but but we worked hard for you and not for ourselves. We worked hard for others because Christ worked hard for us. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet handed their burdens over to Jesus, I pray that you you would help them to see that you're waiting to work for them and that they don't have to work any longer. And I, God, I pray for all of us that you would, you would help us to work hard in every aspect of our life, that everything about our life would be handed over to you as an act of worship and that we would spread your glory broader and deeper. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Let us stand to respond and continue in prayer
1: through Psalm. Take me. My-
4: amazing thing this this gospel it touches every aspect of our life it's not just for sunday it's for monday and if you're here and and you're like i don't get it i don't get how these people can can think about work and be happy about it i don't get how these people can think about being a parent and and finding anything other than drudgery it's because of jesus because of what jesus has done for us it transforms every facet of our life so as i said if you have not come to know jesus if you haven't understand this faith this tradition that we walk in if you have not let jesus die for the burden of your sins we want to help you do that we want to talk to you about how how this changes everything now and forever so if you have questions you can email us ryan shared our email address info at dscabq Dot com. If you're here in this room and you have questions, there's going to be somebody outside in the foyer or in the courtyard that would love to talk to you about that. Just just go and find them. Church, ordinarily this coming week would be our Lord's Supper service. We are not doing that this week, but pray we're planning on doing it the last week of September. Okay, so there's no Lord's Supper service this week, but but hopefully in September we'll get to eat together, enjoy that fruit of Christ's work on our behalf as we remember his body and blood. Until that day, until the day that Christ returns, I leave you with this from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.